0: Welcome. This is great turnout. Um, I want to welcome you on behalf of Dean Kennedy. Um, She's uh, out of town in Washington, DC today, uh, yesterday and today. Um, This is really uh, the first in a series of three forums um, that we're doing this fall, uh, all concerned with creating teaching opportunities during critical events, schooling during the immigration debates. Um, And we have four distinguished faculty here with us today, Um, to my immediate right, Dr. Darlene Bruner, who's a professor in leadership development. Uh, Dr. Linda Evans, professor of foreign language education. Dr. Barbara Cruz, professor of social studies education. And Dr. Sherman Dorn, professor of social foundations. Um, Part of the College of Education commitment This this whole series is part of our commitment as a college to values of diversity and to the whole notion of uh, the importance of enhancing our own, both faculty and student, competence with regard to uh, addressing issues of diversity. This forum uh, I wanted to mention was initiated by Dr. Carlos Zaliquet, faculty member in counselor education. as a result of some of his interactions with school administrators out in, this, out in the public schools uh, during some of the recent demonstrations uh, about, in, about the immigration issue. And the idea was immediately uh, supported by the co leaders of the college wide diversity committee, Drs. Barbara Shercliffe, Dr. Jacob Roberts, and Patty Alvarez McPatton. And just uh, the the College Diversity Committee is a grassroots faculty group uh, that is clearly supported by the dean uh, as an important part of the college. Just wanted to mention two other events that are coming up being sponsored by the diversity group uh, as well. On uh, September 22nd, um, which is also a Friday, two weeks, two weeks from today, um, is another forum uh, Over the last year or so, the committee conducted a number of focus groups with faculty around issues of how do we try to infuse diversity into our courses, into our programs, and what are the challenges, what are the barriers, what are the facilitators to to doing that well? Um, And there's actually some planned focus groups over the, probably in the spring, that will be done with students, trying to get your voice as well in how you see us doing our job in, in terms of infusing diversity into the curriculum. On October 12th is the second annual uh, successful Latino-Latina student award and panel discussion. Um, that's in the evening, 6 to 9 p.m. Just uh, another, one more quick word and then I'll get out of the way and munch while our faculty are talking. Um, but as I said, this is the first of three forums on this topic. Um, this one is a faculty conversation on creating teaching opportunities from critical events the second part uh, forum on this in this series will be October 13th uh, uh, what October was it 20th. thank you October 20th October 20th um, which it will have a community perspective so we'll have panel members from the community talking about the same issues and then on December 4th um, will be a forum uh, that will be invited participants from the College of Education, surrounding school districts, community members, and also uh, student, uh, student presenters. There's actually going to be a student essay competition for students writing about uh, critical events. Um, and, and a student or students will be invited to present a short version of their paper at, the, at, the, uh, at that event as well. So this is part of, uh, part of the college commitment to this. And with that, I will really turn it over what, to, the, to the faculty. And they can proceed uh, in. Would it be best to start from right here with Darlene and then go that way?
1: Although I'm going to end up talking more about school leadership than... One you start, yeah. the, right, start at the other <laughs> man. But basically
0: the, the faculty were asked to address from their own perspective what are the key issues for schools uh, that are raised by the students and their families response to immigration laws, what options are available to schools in responding to students and their families, and from your perspective how might schools choose among these options. And some people might also address what can we do at the faculty at the university level as well. So it's it's, the focus may go out at the K-12 level, but also at the university level. How can we use critical events uh, to, and use them as teachable moments in our, in our work?
2: Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see all of you here. I'm Sherman Dorn. I'm an historian of education and a member of the Social Foundation's faculty here at the College of Education. I'd actually thought I wouldn't be setting the stage, so uh, a few impromptu remarks first before um, I talk about what I was intending to. The debate over immigration laws that has occurred this year and the rallies have involved Um, minors and students in middle schools and high schools to an extent that, as far as I'm aware, is unique in North American history. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, However, I want to make clear for those of us who've spent the last five, ten, whatever years in Florida, there is a larger context specifically with schools. That in a number of Western states, there have been attempts to try to restrict education and social services based on immigration status. Um, and there have also been a number of referenda in Western states, Southwestern states, to restrict um, bilingual education in a number of states. Um, and this has caused some very interesting and unique situations that. Uh, uh, my colleague that, uh, Dr. Evans probably knows more than than I do about that. Um, historically the schools have always had to deal with immigration and in many ways that's been one of their primary roles is socialize immigrants. In the late 19th century um, as Carlos Blanton wrote in a recent wonderful book The Strange Career of Bilingual Education in Texas um, because there was no strict law in Texas everything was determined by the county judge which at the time the county the county head judge was in charge of the schools, sort of an odd situation so in some places schools did not do bilingual education in other cases the schools did bilingual education well anybody have any idea what languages were the common ones used in Texas in the late 19th century German, German yes good thank you to sister Tura yes Many of you probably would have anticipated Spanish, and Spanish probably was the most common, but German, Polish, Czech, and it varied by locale. It was in the 20th century that Texas became a lot more like what other states did in the early 20th century and have the far more punitive ad, um, attitudes towards immigration, different cultures, different languages. Um, so in many respects, we've come a long way from the latent, from the early 20th century where schools punished students for speaking languages of origin, um, even in non-classroom situations. Um, you still occasionally see that, unfortunately. So to this year and the immigration rallies, one of the things that schools had to focus on, and for this I'll probably be a bookend with um, Dr. Bruner is that in a number of communities, surprisingly large proportions of students left school to go to immigration rallies. On May 1st, probably uh, reporters estimated that about a quarter of students in a number of Los Angeles area high schools left school to go to an afternoon immigration rally. Uh, There was a huge march down in Fort Myers area in the southwest part of Florida that drew in thousands from uh, the communities in southwest Florida and it pushed a lot of schools to have to think, how do you deal with that? And so let me talk about that specifically. um, uh. One thing in terms of the involvement of students in politics and the immigration debate is that it's both welcome and highly uncomfortable for a number of educators in schools one reason for the discomfort is attention in institutional roles. On the one hand, we have the democratic goals of education. We're supposed to educate people for citizenship. On the other hand, there's the tendency of schools as institutions to try to control the behavior of youth. So, um, what happens when there are protest rallies that children <laughs> attend? Well, we worry about their safety, about their not being in school. We wonder if they should be punished for attending, and most of all, for a lot of administrators in a very high-stakes, accountable, accountability-focused environment, you think, what will the local talk radio station say about me no matter what I do? The second reason for the discomfort is a general tension between socialization and what youth want to do for themselves. On the one hand, we're supposed to be teaching children to be good citizens as they grow up, but on the other hand, we want them to do what their elders tell them to, and this includes going to school every day. Historically, children are involved in major political events only rarely and at the margins, most frequently as props. So you'll see in advertisements this fall, children as part of families and posters or or sometimes as poster children for various campaigns. The only widespread visible political events in the last 50 years that I know of where students have been major figures have been the protests against the Vietnam War in this country in the late 60s and early 70s, and student protests in France in 1968 and earlier this year. In all of those three cases the students involved were adults and in college. And there was still a lot of hue and cry over the inappropriate rebelliousness of college students in the 60s and 70s even though they were adults. As I said earlier, as far as I'm aware, the involvement of teens and youth in the immigration rallies this spring is singular. In American history, in terms of the involvement of under-18 youth in political events, the only thing I can possibly compare it to is the involvement of adolescents in the Great Awakening, a um, evangelical movement in the early 19th century. That's the only comparison I can possibly draw on. Although, you know, I'm, I, I, other historians may have better parallels than I do. The second issue is that if schools do not address the political capacity of children, they risk that all the lessons about civics might be seen as hypocritical. And I suspect that Dr. Cruz has, might have a similar uh, point. In some way, I, I'd say there's uh, social foundations and sociologists might say there's a parallel between sex education and civics education and the risk of hypocrisy. What do you do in sex education, no matter what your approach? You say, here's some information because we know you're going to need it and because, well, we sort of figure it's our school, it's our job as schools to tell you about this, but don't do it yet. (laughs) Now, think about the message might be when um, uh, Antonio uh, Villaragosa, the mayor of Los Angeles, said, stay in school. We know this is going to involve your families. We know that you're heartfelt, but stay in school. And uh, the message might be, well, here's some information about being citizens, because we know you, you, you're going to need it, and it's our role, but don't do it yet. So you know that's a, that, that's a serious danger in terms of, of, of things. Um, finally, in terms of uh, key issues, schools should be aware that many of the decisions about attending rallies and political events are not children in isolation that parents have a huge role and families have a huge role. Uh, In Los Angeles, Archdiocese Head Cardinal Roger uh, Mahoney joined the mayor to say stay in school. But you know what? A lot of parents said, well, this is more important for this day. Um, And one of my concerns about punishing students for attendance is that um, because you're punishing them for following the dictates of parents, and usually that doesn't work when you try to set up when, you're, when you set up a conflict between schools and family. Historically, parents get the last word unless they're a very, very small minority. So the second question we were asked to deal with is what options are available? I spoke a lot on sort of the perspective, so I'll do this very shrunken so I can, my colleagues can talk some more. Um, in the spring, the response varied. And actually, no one, as far as I'm aware, has documented the range of responses by administrators. That would be a great dissertation topic for someone. Uh, For example, one report said an Inglewood, California principal locked down classes using the procedures for a nuclear war. (laughs) Um, We know some principals tried to incorporate the immigration controversy into the curriculum, giving students a voice inside the school. Um, For example, a bunch of, of, of schools in Los Angeles did that. Some principals also considered and probably followed through with punishments for students who attended rallies. Options I haven't seen discussed included maybe education about nonviolence and marches. That would fit in perfectly well with social sciences. Some, or some sort of community and curricular payback. If you go to a rally, you have to come and give something back to the school. So you know those are all options, and I'm sure there are other ones. From my perspective as an educational historian and social foundations person, how might schools choose among these? Um, I'll give sort of some, just some general advice. One is um, it might be a wise idea to choose options that don't put schools in conflict with families. That's probably a good thing. Second might be to choose options that don't highlight the inconsistencies that all large organizations have. You don't want to set it up as a please do what we say, not what we've done in the past, or stuff like, or, or what your, your uh, uh, culture and community are, are highlighting. And finally, choose options that make connections between the events of the day and academics, and that's probably a good segue to uh, Dr. Cruz.
3: Perfect, thank you very much. Um, I think I I need to start off with a disclaimer, and my disclaimer is that I am a professor of social studies education, and um, I approach the issue of immigration very much like what Dr., you just kind of like gave me a soft, you know, underhand. But I also have to tell you that I am Uh, a former immigrant child myself, product of the public school system. So I obviously approach this from an academic perspective, but also from a very personal uh, perspective. And my experience, in many ways, echoes the experience of what a lot of kids and a lot of families are saying right now. And that is that um, education, schooling in America, has been a bittersweet experience. On the one hand, it's been a way, a pathway, to obtain financial security uh, for families, for individuals, to attain the American dream, if you will, through education. But at the same time, oftentimes, immigrant kids have not been particularly welcomed at the schoolhouse door. And with all the recent um, rallies and demonstrations and proposed legislation and debates that there have been in the media, uh, a lot of families, a lot of kids, are reporting feelings of alienation Of isolation um, when they uh, attempt to engage in any kind of meaningful discourse with schools now from my disciplinary perspective remember I'm a former social studies teacher especially at the high school level um, and now I'm a social studies educator in my work I come across three key issues that people report over and over again the first one is the most obvious one when you're talking about immigrants and that is English language learners, or L's for short. And obviously, Dr. Evans is going to really talk about this even more since that's her area of specialization. Um, but bilingual education has been under increased fire in recent years. The English language movement, the English, English only movement, has been particularly vociferous. And students report a lot of frustration in schools um, as resources are being slashed, as bilingual education classes are being slashed. Um, having been a product of the sink or swim method of English acquisition, I can tell you that it's, it's a very frustrating method by which to learn English um, and can be psychologically harmful in many respects. Uh, in the case of uh, parents, many times the parents of English language learners don't feel particularly well equipped to advocate on behalf of their children. Perhaps they don't know their rights. Perhaps they don't know the language themselves and they can't really go in there and advocate or have a sense of agency you know, for their kids. And of course then there's the other side of the coin, and that's parents of non-English language learners. And oftentimes they also say, hey, wait a second, our educational resources are being slashed, and the little bit that we do have, I see that you're really putting it into these other kids who are not even here legally. Wait a second, what's going on? And um, I was telling Sherm before we started that uh, this past year, in January of '06, so it was in the middle of the school year, my daughter goes to uh, public elementary school, Uh, A child came in, literally off the boat. I mean, he had been in the United States for a day or two, and he had come into the United States. He was here legally. Uh, He was a political refugee, but he was in our schools, did not know English. And the teacher uh, was assigning him uh, to a buddy in the class. And this buddy was going to help him to figure out where the boys' room was, and the cafeteria, and the whatever. Um, And several parents balked at the idea of having their child serve as the instructional buddy because they felt that perhaps instructional time was being taken away from their child. Um, you know, my daughter, of course, stepped right up to the plate. You go, Amanda. And um, she was able to, she, it, it was a phenomenal experience for her, you know, that where she really grew a lot. Teachers, of course, report being overwhelmed, lack of training, lack of resources, lack of time, and we certainly empathize with that situation. There is also the issue of high-stakes testing you know, in schools. And I know that um, all of us are very familiar with the controversies associated that, with that movement. Basically, the, the premise being that these tests are going to seek to improve school achievement. And here's the kicker part, that they're going to hold schools accountable for that achievement. But of course, that's very problematic because lots of times school funding is tied to these test scores. Uh, Grade promotion is tied to these test scores. Uh, Graduation is tied to these test scores. And since oftentimes ability tracking is also tied to these test scores, then what you get is a group of segregated school children in in a school, you know, where they never get to really integrate, mingle, and, you know, have an education alongside the regular kids that are in school. And then the third issue for us um, as social studies educators is discussion of immigration issues. I cannot think of another content area, not math, not science, not language arts, another content area that deals with immigration more directly. In U.S. history, it is impossible to teach U.S. history without talking about immigration. It is impossible to talk about geography without talking about human migration. It is impossible to talk about government and civics without talking about political uh, policy, uh, immigration law, and such. And um, just to Bring this to mind. Yesterday, I just got this—the um, latest issue of *Social Education*. This is the flagship journal of our National Council for the Social Studies, and sure enough, you open up, and what's a feature article—the immigration reform debate. You yeah. um, know, the latest issue of *Smithsonian*, which is another issue, another journal that we all use um, in social studies teaching, is a wonderful. Retrospective on the Braceros Program. Bracero coming from the word brazo, arm. You know, laborers that came that were brought in from Mexico. Four and a half million people were brought in from Mexico uh, right after World War II uh, to work in the United States, and and then it was abruptly halted in 1964 when the labor shortages went away. And what happened to all of these individuals? So, what are our options? You know, in curriculum development we say that sometimes it's just as important or maybe even more important to talk about what we leave out not just what we put in. So let me tell you what is a non-option. A non-option is to turn students away. Turning students away is a surefire way to ensure adults who are going to have a much higher chance of going on government assistance is a way to ensure that they're going to be having a much increased risk of serving prison time. Um, This is not the answer. And even if you don't look at the students' welfare, don't take the students' welfare into consideration. Just look at our national welfare. We need people who are going to be able to participate in and contribute to our national prosperity. And I say, and I use the word prosperity in its larger sense, obviously, not just, you know, financial prosperity. Um, the main option, as far as I'm concerned anyway, is it's very clear. Uh, I'd like to mention, and perhaps Linda, you might be talking about this too, but the historic 1982 Supreme Court decision, Puyler versus Doe, where basically uh, the Supreme Court ruled that that illegal or undocumented workers, even though they were not American citizens, are considered humans in the ordinary sense of the term, and thus the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution would be applicable to them. It would be good for all of us you know, to remember that landmark case. We need to obviously discuss immigration issues in the classroom, our teachers report to us all the time that they are watching MTV and a kid sees a rally in L.A. and comes in the next day and says, Mr. Smith or Senor Hernandez, you know, what's going on? What's all these people, Where are these people, you know? And teachers report feeling sometimes um, not equipped to talk about these issues, but also they're scared. They're scared about the emotional content of these issues, and is it going to explode? Am I going to lose control in the classroom? What about classroom management issues? We need to take these issues on head-on and use the most active, meaningful types of learning strategies that we have, like simulations and debates and case studies and role playing and all of those kinds of things. And then lastly, I'll leave you with um, an act, a legislative act, that a lot of people don't know about. It's called the DREAM Act. I never remember the acronym. The the acronym is DREAM, but let me tell you what it stands for. It's the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, DREAM Act. And it's based on the reality that every year, about 50,000 undocumented students graduate from our high schools in the United States every year. And then what happens? They would like to attain a college education. They would like to go to trade school. They would like to go to a vocational school. But because they're undocumented, they don't qualify for in-state tuition. They don't qualify for scholarships or grants or loans. And this act, which, by the way, is a bipartisan act, um, it was first introduced by Senator Orrin Hatch, Republican from Utah, and Senator um, Richard Derman, Democrat from Illinois. And it was introduced in '03. It passed the Senate Judiciary Committee, committee in March of '06 and i think it's really uh, an important piece of legislation that we should all be behind and thank you linda well barbara just gave me about 10 more things to talk
4: about <laughs> and i was already having trouble figuring out like, you know you just talk fast like i do and then you get it on. Okay. all okay right. <laughs> Um, actually, the one thing that, there are a number of things that she said and that Sherman said that resonated um, with my experience and what I wanted to, to speak to today, but I guess maybe the, the main one is the head-on, you know, uh, approaching these issues head-on, not being afraid of them, because it's kind of, as I was sitting here putting this all together, I thought, you know, especially from the perspective of a foreign language ed and bilingual ed and English as a second language person, it's kind of like the elephant in the room, you know? nobody wants to talk about. We all want to make nice, but it's the very kids and the very subject areas that, that I deal with in my discipline that make it not just a nice thing to do, but almost imperative to to address. And so uh, my first line here was the major issue for schools is not whether to address this issue, but rather how to address it. Um, I think it's, it's really critical, and that's been brought out. Uh, my two, my, my areas has, has been stated several times as foreign language ed, bilingual education, and ESOL, and actually bilingual ed is, is probably my main area of training, and so the, the ESOL and the foreign language kind of come, come from that. Um, and I have lots of ideas about what programming ought to look like in schools in terms of uh, language use, language teaching, um, but that's for a, a whole other lecture. Um, one of the things that, uh, as I was sitting and thinking about this, I thought, well, okay, so I've, I'm sitting here saying this has to be addressed. All right? So what would be the issues around this? Well, I think that it's really important for schools to consider their population. Who are the kids in their schools? And the schools across, if you just take Hillsborough County, very dramatically. I mean, you have schools that have 80% Latino students not simply from Mexico, but from a lot of different um, backgrounds. You have other schools that have 10% or 15%. And so the schools that, just within our district, really vary dramatically. And I think that schools need to be responsive to that. And so the immigration debate will appear in those schools in a different form, depending on who their students are. Um, What classes, what subject areas, what what grade levels? In foreign language ed, um, you're looking mostly at secondary. And so, the secondary is constructed with, with uh, separate classes for different subject areas. And so you're, you're looking at a different type of coordination and, and uh, you're looking at um, subject areas like social studies and like literature and like uh, English and like ESOL and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, how are schools going to address this issue within the subject areas because one social studies class focuses on one thing and another focuses on another. Um, and, and literature, and then across inter- in an interdisciplinary way, which I think is abs- actually, you know, it's my bias in education that we divide things up into little segments too much when learning really happens in a cross-disciplinary fashion. And then, what about the community that is served by the school, um, or you know, that surrounds the school? What are their wishes? What are their beliefs? What what would they benefit from, and what can they add to the conversation? So, you know, my key issue would be student population. You have to know who's in your school and, and what the needs and desires are. Now, I started thinking about okay, so you've got foreign language classes at the secondary level. Ideally, students go into these classes and they learn a language and they learn about the culture, the target culture. I say ideally because every semester I have my students write a little autobiography about their language learning experiences, and maybe 10% say, yeah, I really learned Spanish in high school. You know, I really can use it and then the rest have different experiences. And so I think we need to think about what is the purpose of our foreign language classes? Is it really to teach facility in the language and and to, and to address cultural issues? The immigration debate brings us an unbelievably rich opportunity to do that. We could actually have our students in our foreign language classes talking about real things, not just conjugating verbs. Um, that would be, you know, a big step forward. Now, I'm being a little facetious because, of course, the students who graduate from our program do much more than have their students conjugate verbs, but you know even in beginning level classes if you were to actually take a content based focus to to the instruction what you would find is you would have students even at beginning levels talking about real issues and those real issues would plug into the cultures that they're studying which would naturally plug into some of the social studies historical kinds of, of things going on in schools that they're learning in their other classes so I think it's, it's really a rich opportunity at the secondary level in the foreign language classes as I said there are some foreign language classes at the elementary school but, but typically it's secondary the other hat that I wear is really working with um, students here in how to teach students in their, in their schools as they as mainstream teachers teaching children in their classes who don't speak English, and so, so ESOL is the other area. And I think that the issues there are really quite, quite different when you're talking about immigration issues. Um, you have children in your classes from all different immigration backgrounds and experiences. Uh, you have the ones who were born and raised here, and just you know, the, and they spoke Spanish or or whatever Korean at home, and then they come to school and they're learning English. So they're American citizens; they were born and raised here. You have students in those classes who are naturalized citizens; they came with their families, they went through the you know the legal process. You have students who are migrants. You have students who are documented. You have students who are, their parents are undocumented. You have the whole host. And I think when you're talking about ESOL classes in the midst of this firestorm of immigration debates. For me, again, with the focus on the student, the most important thing would be to create an environment of safety and comfort and nurturing for those students, because their families are living the debate at this point. It's not an academic issue for them. They may have been out of school with their parents marching, um, they, or, or they saw it on TV, and the faces they see on TV at those marches are the faces of their cousins, and their you know, uh, people having similar experiences. And so I think we're talking about very different kinds of issues, and so we would approach those issues somewhat differently um, in ESL classes than we would in foreign language classes. What are some of the options that I see? Well, again, the first thing I thought of was, well, what is our philosophical orientation going to be? Is it going to be, we'll address these issues as they come up? You know, the, if, if it comes up in my class, then I'll deal with it. Um, or, is the teacher going to be proactive and say, okay, it exists, the elephant in the room, let's deal with it, let's, let's grab it and make it work for us so we can talk about real things and get real cultural insights. Well, you know, I'm in favor of the second one, obviously, that just tends to be my nature. Um, John Dewey said, conflict is the gadfly of thought. It stirs us to observation and memory, it instigates to invention. And I believe that. You know, I look at these debates as opportunities for people to get to know one another, for us to get to know our students, and for us as teachers and teachers in schools to deal with their own issues around around the immigration debate. We all have opinions. We all have experiences. And when Barbara talked about the fact that she, you know, was an immigrant child, that's very salient in a teacher. Whatever your experiences are, you carry them into the classroom. They don't go away. Um, in, you know, in the most brilliant lesson plan that you teach. So I think one of the um, options that, t- that schools need to explore is uh, a coordinated effort. You know, how are we going to address this? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it within grade level teams. Let's talk about it across disciplines. Um, how are we going to involve the community and the parents? Again, we know who our students are. We've done an assessment of what we think are our needs and our desires and our... Uh, strengths are at the school, how will we involve parents as experts, uh, bringing in other experts from the community, you know, legal, um, immigration lawyers, people involved in community groups, things like that. And, and a point was made, I can't remember who made it, about the fact that dealing with controversial topics in schools can be very scary. And um, some teachers are more comfortable with controversial topics than others. And preparation can mean the difference between insightful exchange and a free-for-all. None, none of us wants a free-for-all in our classes. Um, and we don't want to send our, our graduates out to create havoc You know, in schools. We want it to be meaningful and, and, and insightful. And so I think training, offering training for teachers, if we're serious in schools about using some of these critical events, I think we need to support our teachers in, in how to do that. Um, and then seeking educational resources. What exists out there that will help us? I just did a cursory uh, search on the web and, and found a wonderful website with lots of, of great um, great resources and SCORE, HSS, Schools of California Online Resources for Education, History and Social Studies. And they have just links to every place. So. I'll be happy to make that available to you. Well, how do schools then choose between all these different things that they might want to do? And I'm, I'm just going to go back and, and, you know, be repetitive, and say that, you know, you have to know your students, you have to know the desires of your community, your parents, your students, and know the strengths in, of your teachers. Provide training as requested by teachers as, as desired. Um, develop a deep understanding of the issues. I think sometimes. If we're in a situation where we're afraid of the issues we we see it on TV but we don't want to get too deeply involved in it but I think it's imperative (coughs) as educators that we know what the critical issues are and know them well Um, look for academic opportunities within the issues you know what kinds of reading activities can we do I mean reading the newspaper reading websites writing writing to legislators writing to community groups um, linguistic, you know, language development. What can we talk about in our classes around this that will be real, meaningful language, um, authentic language, either whether it's foreign language or, or English. Um, and inter- opportunities for interpersonal communication. Getting our students, helping our students to know one another is very important. Um, you know, and, and you, we have our academic goals, but we also have our larger sort of humanistic goals of helping our students to know one another. Um, to feel comfortable in their school setting and safe. I think that's really important for our immigrant students especially. And to do a lot of bridge building between our students who are learning about other cultures and and our students who represent those other cultures. Well, I approached it from the leadership point of view because
5: I train uh, uh, and work with people who would like to be school leaders one day. Now, my philosophy is that all of you, if you're involved in education, are leaders. You're leaders within your classrooms. You can be leaders within your department, within your school. And so really when I talk about leadership, I talk about it in the broadest sense of the word. But particularly for people who have to uh, deal with the issues, um, hopefully uh, those people in California had some training uh, that uh, Sherman was talking about, but they chose to ignore it because the law Kleiler versus Doe, 1982, has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not that we should be ignorant of that. Uh, and that's very important uh, because districts cannot classify undocumented or other immigrant students on the basis of their immigration status as non-residents under state uh, attendance. You see, what happens is that students who come are in the state says everybody between the ages of 6 and 16 has to go to school. And it doesn't say if you're an immigrant or if you're not an immigrant. It says all children between the, that reside here in the state of Florida must attend school. And so that's part of the issue, and that's, that's where it comes about. And, of course, um, it, it's very important that we understand that. You can't make list of students who are immigrants. You can't refer uh, about it in records about their status, whether they're legal or illegal. None of that can be documented on students. And yet I think in some instances, when we get the community problems, uh, uh, immigrants who've come in illegally are then afraid at times to send their children to school for fear they'll be found out. So it, it really goes not only within the school walls, but it's outside of the school walls. And so here you have them maybe withholding their children from attending school, and then the attendance officer sees them, and the next thing you know, you know, they're being told they need to put their kids in school. So, you know, we kind of created some of our problems ourselves, I think, with that. But really, no student uh, can uh, be denied services under any state or locally funded programs, regardless of their status. And that's important. To piggyback on uh, what... um, Dr. Evans said about the knowledge, there, you know, I think part of the reason that as administrators or as teachers that we don't want to address the issue is that we have life in the bubble. You know, We have life in the bubble here at the university. We're just all evolved in our little world of education, and the curriculum that we're responsible for teaching and the accountability, and it's easy just to pull ourselves within that shell and not address it, and yet as educators, we need to be the very example regardless of where we work uh, with with students and young people in the community, of being good citizens, being informed citizens about these issues. And so I thought, well, how much do I know? So I thought, I'll just go on the internet and search like Dr. Evans did. And I found that 80%, talking about both sides, now you have to understand if I would teach this to my students, and we do talk about it, I would teach them to remain neutral. You, you don't want to, as a teacher, lead a discussion and get entangled with that pro or con, I don't think, personally. So, and, and I think that's where teachers get afraid. And so you have to present both sides of an issue if you really want students to debate and let them come to their own choices. And you have to ask good questions, but you have to have that knowledge before you can ask those good questions. And so look, there's a lot of polls out. What is it that people think? Well, 80% of the people polled in December of 2005 by ABC said the government's not doing enough to keep illegal immigrants out uh, from coming to the United States. Well, that really isn't a surprise to us, is it? But what does that mean, you know, uh, and how does that look, and what are they doing? And those are the kinds of conversations that we need to be having. They talked about there's 11 unmillion documented immigrants in the United States, or about almost 4% of our population. In the United States is un- undocumented, and the, an average of seven to eight hundred thousand uh, arrive annually, with about one sixth of that population being uh, children under the age of eighteen. And Florida ranks third behind Flor- uh, California and Texas as far as undocumented immigrants. And you know, it's not just Hispanics or Latinos who have been out. It's also uh, a few years back we had Haitian refugees. Uh, you know, and Cuban refugees who came to our country and were coming in from uh, for different reasons. So it's it's really a lot more than that. And about, I read the statistics, 65,000 uh, immigrants without legal status graduate from U.S. high schools each year. That's, that's a lot of students who uh, don't have access to education beyond. That's why the DREAM Act is very important. There are a few states, however, that will allow them in-school tuition so that it at least makes it a little bit more affordable. Uh, But not all states do that, which is why they're trying to get a federal act passed. Um, What are the real issues and why are people upset? Uh, And part of it is access to benefits and the cost to taxpayers. And that's originally how the suit in Texas, Plyler versus Doe, came about was because of the impact it had on schools. Uh, and taxation and so forth and so we really have to be attuned to what the larger community is and so what do we have to do to do that well you know there's always a choice we could do nothing that is a choice I would hope that we would not do that um, I think we have to be proactive as educators in working with all students uh, within our school population to better meet their needs regardless uh, that we have to be avail- uh, aware of available services to students so that we can help students and their families. Uh, the first school where I was principal was 98% Hispanic and 98% free and reduced lunch. And I had to be really good. I mean, we had GED offerings at our school. I had, you know, nurses come to the school because they were afraid to go uh, down to the uh, and get services for their children, and their children were sick. And so you learn to, uh, when you're in that situation, reach out to the community, because the schools, we're only one little microcosm within a community, and there are lots of resources out there that are available for us, and we need to, to be aware of it and, and get services for the students. Um, in Title I, if you're a Title I school, uh, a lot of districts have uh, migrant advocates, that help the families. If you work in a school like that, you need to understand what services are available so that if the student's not getting them, you know to go and ask. Because so often, if the teacher doesn't know and doesn't talk to somebody about it, then the student doesn't get the service they need. Um, And and that should never happen nowadays. Um, We need to invite speakers uh, to talk to our students. Uh, A diversity panel uh, made up of different uh, people and let them talk about their different cultures and let students uh, learn about each other uh, and attend informational meetings to keep informed um, about the issues and concerns and potential problems. Um, and, and I think as school personnel, regardless of where you work, we have to be ethical in our treatment of all students. You know, We have to understand what ethical decision-making means. If I make the decision not to do something I've made that decision and it's going to affect students and so what we have to look at is to reach back and look at the overall good for what we need to do for students so what can we do in, in schools I think in my uh, discipline uh, we have to be sure that uh, people coming out of our program understand the laws and the requirements that understand what ethical decision making really means, uh, keep them informed about the issues so that they're not afraid to lead the faculty or a department or a committee in those hard conversations. and to in- encourage uh, and invite that dialogue. because I think as we have dialogue, there's more understanding created, and in a sense then it will ripple out from uh, the administrators to the teachers to the students to the community. Uh, And I think that really is important and and I have to say I'm probably older than anybody in this room and I can remember when we integrated schools and one of the things that we did that was really very good at the time and too bad we haven't kept it up, we had a lot of meetings in our districts between uh, African-American teachers and white teachers between parent groups of both and we talked about our feelings and we had people that helped us with this our feelings how would our children feel what could we do how would the teacher feel who was uh, because the minority teachers were being transferred out of their schools uh, in our district uh, to all new schools how would they feel what could we do We, we and we prepared for it for a year So it really went very smoothly because of that preparation. I don't think I've seen anything like that since we faced the immigrant crisis um, in the last uh, 25 years. So I, I think we need to do more, and that needs to come from us.
0: Okay. Thank you all. What I'd like to do is open it up to questions and comments, but also provide an opportunity for perhaps the panelists to first discuss with each other and uh, m- counterpoints or whatever.
2: Yeah, there's actually one thing is, is um, I had made a statement earlier that I think Professor Cruz needs to make a correction on me about, because <laughs> uh, I saw a, a, a brief handwritten note there about, uh, uh, I had said that as far as I was aware in terms of national political events, this is unique in terms of children being involved, and I had said, but... You know, I was trying to think of that, and I have a, a sneaking suspicion that I'm wrong in that. So um, one of the joys about being a faculty member is I can be really happy if I can go home having learned something.
3: So you see, so I wrote this sneaky little note to myself, you know, to send him an email later, right? <laughs> but no, so he's bringing it up. I, the only other one that I can think of is the 1968 Chicano student walkout in the Watts area, yes. LA area, yeah. okay. of, of Southern California. Dr. Shercliffe did you want to... I just I you know I just remember something um, about that, and it was at the senior high school level. Uh, a lot of the students were complaining that the schools that they attended were underfunded, that they didn't have textbooks, that the teachers you know weren't qualified. Um, it was a prison kind of lockdown mentality at the schools, and they did um, they refused to attend class. And they walked out, and I think it, I want to say it lasted for close to a week or so, and um, it became part. It became more popularized. I'd say about last year when Edward J. Edward James Olmos, the mm-hmm. actor director, directed a uh, a movie, uh, an HBO movie on this particular event. I have not seen it, but I remember seeing the advert of it. So anyway, that's the only one other one that I can think of.
1: I was, this
2: is is sort of a tale of be careful the questions that you ask in your own head because they restrict what you think about. Uh, But yes.
5: One of the things that I I didn't mention, things that we could do for assignments and and activities with students is um, to do cultural autobiographies. Uh, There's a lot out there written about that, about life histories. Or have students do reflective analysis journals after you've perhaps had this diversity panel. Uh, and have them internalize, and what did that actually mean? Do some cross-cultural interviews. In fact, that's one of my assignments in my classes this time, is that they have to go out and interview an advocate for uh, a community-based advocate, but it has to be someone different than them, because we tend to, you know, uh, go and to be with people like us. And so we have to start that conversation, and sometimes we have to force those issues out. And of course, to have uh, have people come up with an activist action plan, what are we going to do? So those are just some other ideas for activities.
4: One of the one of the issues that's always so interesting to me and just adds another layer, of sort of, controversy or things that we have to think through, is that we we in schools, and I I made some mention of this, but with regards to the immigration debate, there are such varied opinions, and even within the immigrant community, um, because you have so many different uh, situations, so many different classifications of folks, you know, who came here at different times, that there is not conformity or uniformity um, amongst people who we would, you know, those who, of us who are not immigrants might put, you know, into that category, and and I think that's something that. Um, you know, being aware of that and, and working that with that in your curriculum also, I think is, is quite interesting. And you also have the issue of students who are in foreign language ed classes in the secondary level who are from certain heritage groups, certain ethnicities, but have lost or may, perhaps never really developed a facility in their parents' native language. And so now they're in secondary school, they're taking Spanish, for instance, as a foreign language, though their, their abuela speaks Spanish, you know, and, but they can't speak to their abuela in Spanish because they never learn their native, you know, their parents' native language. And so the the layers and layers of interesting permutations of this issue um, really um, would really provide a great richness for our schools. And so I think that's another reason for not shying away from it. It is what it is, and then it also could bring so much to the conversation and put real faces and, and um, people you know, with the issues.
0: Questions, comments from people out in the audience? This was uh, hoped to be a, a dialogue amongst uh, the panel members and you all.
6: I just want to piggyback on what Dr. Evans said um, concerning types uh, of immigrants. That's something that we have to focus on, is that um, there are many different types of immigrants. We have uh, entrepreneurial migrants who have their own personal way of adapting to American society, and they have their own concerns, their own needs. Uh, You have political asylees who also have their own needs. Usually they uh, they come to the United States with... with, uh you know, with uh, in fact, with the uh, encouragement of the U.S. government, and so they have all these. They don't have as many issues as, say, for example, labor migrants. Uh, you know, who have very, uh, uh, you know, um, very vulnerable, very uh, precarious situation and status. Uh, and then you also have uh, professional migrants um, who do not have the same issues and concerns as, say, labor migrants. And so, when we think about Um, you know, the migration issue and so on, we need to sort of uh, have, I guess, a more uh, sophisticated or or nuanced understanding of the different issues, right, and the different concerns and needs of these different uh, communities. And as I think Linda pointed out, um, we need to know something about the ethnic makeup um, of of the schools that we work, because again, if you are working in a a primarily professional migrant community uh, or community, have Different concerns, different diet, different dis- discourses, different discussions. And if you are living in a, in a, say, rural, uh, uh, or rather, you're working in a, or in a rural um, school where the needs of those labor migrants are very different. Their families are likely to have very, again, very precarious uh, uh, types of, of citizen, uh, of, of uh, residency status, and so on. And so, I think that, as, guess in my course. People will get to know between the differences, among the difference between different migrants and needs and so on. But I think we should have probably some kind of, um, I don't know if a diversity uh, diversity class will suffice to do this, but some kind of a class where we actually expose or introduce uh, our future uh, people that we're training uh, in this regard. I guess, it, you know, I guess as I'm an immigrationist, that my area of concentration, per se, I'm maybe, um, I don't know where you would, I guess, a course in diversity, or a uh, course I would really say something about the different types of migrants that uh, actually come to the United States after 1965. Because after 1965, there's a very significant change in the, the color and the way that people that were primarily receiving people from Europe. And after 1965, we're getting a lot of migrants from Latin America, Asia, and so on, who have different languages. And again, different needs are from here for different reasons, not just exclusively for um, to get a job in heavy industry. It used to be the case before So you're saying it should be a class for Not a class, but maybe some segment of a class, like Mm -hmm. social foundations, where you you, you dedicate some time uh, to discussions having to do with these, again, different needs that post-1965 migrants uh, have based on their type of migration whether they're labor migrants versus professional migrants versus political needs, uh refugees versus uh, entrepreneurial migrants and so on. What about, first of teachers we need to try as well to integrate that into our classrooms? Yeah, maybe I, I think one of the panelists yeah. can, can speak
4: to that. One of the, well we teach um, one of the things we do in our program is we have a series of three courses that that teacher that pre-service teachers take. You saw one, two, and three, and they each have a different focus. But those are the kinds of issues that we weave throughout our courses. Uh, who are your students? I mean, I'm, that's that's the drum that I beat a lot. I
1: would say within the classroom ourselves, you know, our our own students, even though they're not university or even high school level, even, even In the K through six even. Well, that would yeah. have some form of an immigration type or cultural type uh, curriculum, so as to help balance out this, this misunderstanding. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, my question, I guess, is uh, uh, for uh, Professor Cruz: Is um, do the Sunshine State Standards include that, or are they too vaguely written?
3: Well, <laughs> yes, the Sunshine State Standards are very vague. Um, that is, that is the 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 negative side of the coin and it is also the positive side of the coin. Because what it means is that you know, as a prospective teacher who is very attuned to these issues, that means that you're going to be able to massage those standards to be able to fit exactly this. Um, And we tell our students all the time that you need to look at that curriculum and you need to do what's right. But with respect to what Dr. Rodriguez was just saying about the different kinds of immigrants and such, first of all, to understand the differences, absolutely, period. But then also, um, here's a, a bulletin that came out with, from the National Council for the Social Studies. It's about how to teach social studies to English language learners, which there's not a whole lot out there. And there's a lesson in here called, Whom Should We Allow In? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's pretty direct. Pretty direct. <laughs> and, and there are about 10 or so little um, personality profiles. You know, of, There's somebody by the name of Lee Chang 25-year-old factory worker from China. He and his wife had one child and they're going to like they they want to settle in San Francisco because there's a large Asian community there. Compare that person to Chandra Patel, a 42-year-old physician from India, internationally well-known cardiologist. And then compare that to Richard Flores, uh, Ricardo Flores, a 34-year-old farmer from a small town in Mexico where there's guerrilla violence. Does the fact that there's guerrilla violence sway you as to whether he should be allowed entry or not? So first of all, to understand all of these, but then secondly, to ask these kinds of ethical questions, you know, with respect to immigration. Does that kind of... But yes, definitely, we need to do that.
0: It strikes me that one of the issues, uh, I mean, in gathering, informing ourselves, getting more knowledge so that we can effectively, uh, as... K-12 teachers, K-12 administrators, understanding the issues around immigration. An object, I mean, another aspect of this that I think some of you have only alluded to, and that is knowledge of oneself. Uh, if, if I'm going to be a K-12 teacher, where am I on all of this And my own self-awareness? It strikes me as, I mean, I think Linda indirectly got at this in terms of the need for training so that we can manage those kinds of of discussions. But the reality is that many of us, particularly in our country, we don't deal with these issues well. We generally don't want to talk about that because we might offend someone. And part of it is because we're not very comfortable with it ourselves. And so figuring out ways to not only gain knowledge about the issues of immigration, but also knowledge about ourselves and where we stand on these issues so that we can help students grow, and perhaps <laughs> while we help our students grow, we, we ourselves might do some growing around some of these issues as well.
1: i is it possible that some of us need to develop a desire to do so? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, some, of, uh, some of the, some of the teachers I have come across in my limited learning experience in the, in the educational field, Um, don't seem to, I mean, yes, they're aware that they need to do it, but they don't seem to have the desire to do it and to participate with their students in learning cultural differences Mm -hmm. and and learning issues dealing with
5: But you all, now that you've participated in this discussion and are going to be thinking about it, <laughs> y'all are going to go out and be different. <laughs>
2: I, I, I think there, you, you can make a, at least you know, institutionally a parallel there with special education because lots of teachers or, begin, or, or people who enter into education programs think, oh, I, I, I don't know, I'm scared, I really don't want to deal with it, and you just say, look, you're going to have students with disabilities in your classroom. Deal. You have no choice. You know, I look
1: at disabilities um, as another culture, you know. It's, it's, in a way, it is. It's another culture that you're
2: dealing with. Um, and, I mean, historically, there still are plenty of teachers who do not deal well with students with disabilities, but there has been a remarkable change from the early 1970s. Um, there are some limits to it. Uh, especially teachers are, are the, the um, uh, things that uh, push teachers buttons are behavior issues now. But in terms of most cognitive issues and, and um, accommodations, while I could um, uh, wish that some things were different, nonetheless teachers in general, oh gosh, what was it that uh, Thomas Scruggs and, and, um, and a co-author said about ten years ago? Most studies say there's sort of a yes, but reaction. Yes, we we'll are welcome into our classroom. There's some limits, and so we have to watch out for those limits, but teachers, you can just say, look, you have to deal. It's your ethical responsibility. This is what being a teacher involves. You don't get to pick your students.
5: Well, and I think, too, it's a larger issue. It's a larger issue in the fact that we as Americans, regardless of where we came from or our backgrounds, the world, uh, you know, if you haven't read The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, you need to do that. Because uh, that's a real eye-opening uh, uh, thing because now with Internet technology, the way we are, we're not isolated. We are more likely in our lifetimes and the children's lifetime, they're going to be dealing with other cultures and, and other, other groups. You know, business-wise, entrepreneur-wise. Uh, And we have to get a handle on that because uh, if we're going to prepare them for that, we have to know about it ourselves. And so, you know, that's a good starting point to start to read that and get your curiosity up
3: and read more. The good news is that most teachers report that having immigrant kids in their classrooms, even though they pose a teaching challenge, they pose no behavioral challenges. If anything, um, you know, they come from places where teachers are exalted Mm -hmm. and where teachers are respected. And you know you mind your P's and Q's. Um, and some very interesting research that Dr. Rodriguez has done um, points to the fact that you know, for the longest time, people felt that uh, as kids became more and more acculturated, and kids learned the language more, they started to do better in school. His research showed just the opposite, that basically the, the, the more recent the immigrant experience, the, the fewer school disruptions they had. It was after they became more Americanized mm-hmm. that they started to have more problems in school. So you know, so I, you know, also, if we can you know, maybe underscore some of those benefits, too, I think that a lot of teachers maybe perhaps might be a little bit more receptive. There was a hand in there. Oh, did you, Jen? Uh,
7: uh, well, just a, a couple of observations. One, on the uh, idea of being to know ourselves and what we bring to the table, to the classroom, to the room, that's huge. So, it all starts by looking within. And I would just poise all of us to question to, as you leave here, or when you walk out, as you you enter back into the world, pay attention to what you notice, and what you judge, because we all do it. We all do it all the time, you make an opinion about someone based on what they're wearing, or what they sound like, or what they look like, or how much they weigh, you know, you make opinions. And so we have to stop that within ourselves. But just be aware of it. Now on the technology piece, this is fascinating to me. Yes, because I'm a technology person, but yes, we are more connected. But pay attention to this, the next time you're in a group of people. How many people are actually talking to and interacting with the people right beside them versus on the telephone or the Uh, cell phone? And you'll be amazed. I believe we are more disconnected now than we have been because of the technology. We're afraid to connect with people right here but we're, so we're calling somebody to feel like we're connected. Uh, I'm curious. <laughs> to how many people are really talking, actually, but it's like a security device is your cell phone. But we do that all the time. And so as teachers, we have to do that. We have to cause our students to face our differences and our similarities, our fears. And my question to our faculty would be, when is the last time we did that in a classroom? Because you are all learning what we do. And so the, the challenge is really for us to, to model it constantly in our learning environment as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should have a forum called Let's Face It. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, are. and yeah. I teach an equity class on, on, yeah. on the issues of racism and gender mm-hmm. and, and classism, and we do, we, we face it. So that might be a fun, dynamic interaction
4: for us. <laughs> you know, I'd like, so there was some comment that made me think that um, I hear my students, I hear people in general say, well, I'm not really into politics, you know, I don't really like, I don't care for politics, and I have to admit, I'm getting pretty weary from all the ads myself right now, but, but I think as teachers, political awareness it really isn't an option because I, I talk to my students a lot about the fact that the students who cross your threshold, the ones who come from other places, are a direct result of whatever's going on in the world. And so in my you know career of working with English language learners you know I remember back when I first started teaching it it was the the kids from Southeast Asia Vietnam Cambodia Laos because it was 1979 and so they you know had just you know they were just coming over at that time and then there was a group of um when I was in Orlando a group of Russian Jews, because they, uh, Russia had, the Soviet Union at that time had opened the doors to to allow uh, some of their folks to leave, and so we got an influx of that. And then you just sort of trace his, you know, history is fascinating to look at. And the comment about post 1965 is very well taken, you know. So teachers, really, I think, need to be aware of what's going on politically, what what we're doing as a society, as a country. Um, what are we doing in the world? Because whatever we're doing in the world is going to have an impact, and whatever everybody else is doing will we'll predict, it's a predictor of who's going to walk through our classroom door in the next year or two. So we don't want to wait until those students come through our door to say, oh, well I guess I need to know a little bit about a student from X place. You know, all you have to do is follow the news and you can pretty much see who's, who you're going to need to be preparing for as a teacher.
5: Well, and, and the other thing about knowing your people that they talked about earlier, I talked with a principal in Orlando, and they have 52 languages within that school. Mazel Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not – another student I talked with last night It was in Pinellas, an assistant principal, and they have 14 languages in their middle school. So it's here as far as dealing with those issues, and, and we really do need to be aware of it. It's waiting on you when you
1: go out to school.
3: (laughs) And, and you know, lots of times I think that um, kids, when they're at home, you know, I made the comment about the MTV, and certainly with all the technology, they are hooked up and they are getting news and and information from all over the place and to connect to sex education. See, I knew there would be another connection. (laughs) (laughs) You know, another parallel is that with sex education, um, you know, I, I taught sex education, by the way, to 10th graders. For a couple of years at Coral Gable Senior High in Miami, and I remember uh, that some parents actively resisted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, "Well, look, you have one of two options: either I can present that information, you know, in a responsible way, in a complete way, you know, or they can get it from their peers,
7: <laughs>
3: right? And they're going to get a lot of these kinds of discussion about these issues and preconceptions and cultural information." From a variety of sources, we owe it to them to discuss it in a responsible, informed way in the classroom. Uh, In our methods courses, in social studies ed, um, and I have a couple of our students here so they will verify, that we require uh, a subscription to a daily newspaper. We require um, a news magazine of some sort. Now, it used to be that I would have them bring me their subscription stuff, you know, to show (laughs) me. But now I recognize that a lot of people get it from the internet. Right, Um, and so, and that's fine, that's fine. Just as long as you don't get those two second sound bites from the TV, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. But I think that all teachers, not just social studies teachers, need to be prepared because the student will be coming in and will ask you questions, questions that they may not even ask their parents, you know, or their guardians, that they don't feel comfortable, you know, chatting with about these issues with, with the other adults in their life. What are the kinds of questions?
6: Uh, I just have a, kind of a comment. Um, this is actually attached to another one of my classes that has been very enlightening. It's on satire, which I never—I just thought it would be a fun class. It's, it's actually teaching me a lot, but I think it's very important as educators um, to know a lot about what's going on in the world around you. Also, because in secondary, uh, secondary education, especially, you're having a lot of students who are getting their, who are now suddenly getting information from like the Colbert report or from the Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, actually yeah, like sorry. you know like satirical news is so older students are interested and they're gonna have questions and they're gonna have, you know, right. dilemmas. And so if that's another reason you're gonna you're gonna I think we're gonna start to notice that especially in secondary ed, students are gonna become maybe um, not fairly so, but but definitely more educated on what's going on on in the world. I
3: Sorry. just learned a new term recently. You know, you've heard the term obviously, documentary. This is mockumentary, yeah. mockumentary yeah. right? And so it mocks something. But lots of times people don't know exactly what they're, you know, they're trying to determine what's true about this and what's not. Exactly. And we have to help them navigate that minefield. Good. That's a great connection. I did
8: a, uh, a case study for, you, uh, for my social foundation. And uh, well, it kind of applies to uh, Florida also, because there's a lot of rural areas in Florida that people don't realize where you might be, 30 miles, 40 miles from a, a nearby town, and uh, be on the last leg of a supply route. Uh, get close to Gainesville, in the middle of Florida, and you're you're there. Uh, Polk County is that way. Um, it it applies to the information people where 98% of a of the school is of a certain culture and the community around it is uh, the majority numerically minority population where the state tells you you have to teach this standard or the state standards say you have to teach this but the community would like you to teach this so the teacher themselves is put in a box well what do I So, I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of stuck. I and mean, how would you take that kind of situation where, yes, you want to teach to the culture and that's immigrant. I've especially, seeing that Florida has a very high ethnic population with, the, with citrus pickers. And it's, you want to be able to teach to them and get on their level where they can understand it. But you still have to teach the state
3: standards and you maybe want to be culturally different? You can do both. You can absolutely do both. Remember uh, Dr. Dorn's commentary about the Sunshine State Standards. They are very flexible. Um, I do tell, though, especially new teachers, you've got to keep your job, though. OK, so you have to be politically savvy about this, too. Make sure that you can find one of the state standards that will cover your, top, you know, your lesson on immigrant Immigration to the United States, or whatever you can find, you can find a state standard on just about everything. But you do have to be smart about it. Um, you have to be balanced about it, to use Dr. Bruner's term. You know, you have to present lots of factual information on both sides. Uh, but I think that you can do both. I don't know how my colleagues feel, but I think it's very much make doable. A
1: There's a lot of websites for uh, teachers uh, to communicate with each other. Uh, as far as uh, getting ideas uh, for a specific class curriculum, uh, perhaps a specific topic that they want to go over, somebody may have already done something like that sure. that you want to do and they can, they can help guide you. And so we have to use the internet and communicate with each other <laughs> from across the country and, and find out who's teaching what and, and how and stuff like that. Yeah,
4: I think also. Um, you can take advantage of interdisciplinary teaching because you have certain Yeah, within every subject area you have certain standards that have to be met but you can write you know within a social studies lesson you can have students reading you can have them um, you, you can meet language arts standards within a lot of the different content areas and so being creative in the way that you look at those standards um, I think is is important and also um, you know taking knowing your students well so that you can see what they bring into the learning environment Luis Maul does has done a lot of work in, in an area of what he calls funds of knowledge you know what do students know what do they live what are their lived experiences and then what do what do my standards say here that I need to be looking at well very often you'll see quite a lot of overlap it takes some creativity it takes getting out of the teachers guides in in those beautiful textbooks that they give us, um, and it's very nice of them to do that. But they don't know my students, you know. They they don't know the kids that are in my class. And so you you, know, you have those as resources, but they're only resources. And so. Being creative, I think, helps. And really knowing the standards well and, and, and being flexible. But I, I echo what you say about you have to keep your job. I tell my students, I want you to be advocates, but realize as a first-year teacher you're not going to go out and change the world. You'll be looking for a different world. Well,
5: I just want to take back on what she said about textbooks as a resource. What you need to understand is that book salesmen are exactly that. They are salesmen. And they will tell you that, oh, these are catered to FCAT. Well, let me tell you, they take the same book, they change the back section, and they go to Georgia, and they say, oh, these are tailored right to the QIC standards for them. Mm-hmm. Then they take it out, and they go to Texas. And they say, the, so do you get the idea? So really use them as a resource, not the be-all, end-all.
2: Uh, one other thing <laughs> is that um, uh, in terms of keeping your job Know that when researchers go out and ask principals, we'd like some of your teachers to try this particular technique. One of the first questions that principals will ask is, will this help me meet my standards? Okay. So researchers usually prepare a crosswalk. Here, is, here are the activities that we're going to do and here are the standards that they meet, and do a nice chart. We had to do this in the College of Education in terms of how our assessment that we did met the various standards for both the state and our national accrediting body. Um, I do not recommend spending the amount of time that we did as a College of Education, but you can do your own crosswalk of just listing. Um, uh, for example, in Hillsborough, principals can ask for our lesson plan at the end of the week, not before the week, but at the end of the week, and you can simply do a simple crosswalk in terms of here are the activities that I did, here are the standards that it meant, and just do a checkoff thing. And if you do it enough, it can become a regular routine, and doing that will assure even the most nervous assistant principal that you're meeting standards. Okay.
6: That's a good idea. I have a quick question. Um, maybe this is probably um, for Dr. Cruz. I'm concerned about how children, you know, K 12, who are seeing all these, um, you know, uh, protests and anti-immigrationist policies and so on, how these kids are going to be perceiving this. They're going to be saying, you know, people like me must be bad people. People like my family, people like that live in my community, know something got bad people. These folks here want us to go back, um, and and what is happening, what may be happening, and what ultimately we may all. Have to pay a price for us, We're alienating these kids even more. These are kids that already are probably living probably are probably um, vulnerable to acquiring, uh, you know, what we know, the kind of oppositional uh, set of attitudes and so on that have been associated with historically disenfranchised groups. These are kids that are on the margins of being alienated, pushed away, uh, and so on. What can we do, all right, uh, as teachers, probably in social studies and so on, to a, uh, provide a more dispassionate, balanced view of thing, You know why these things occur, and two, to tell them, you know, listen, we, the country, doesn't hate you. Um, you know, we want you. We want you to be a productive citizen. We don't want to send you back. How can we do that? Uh, I, I don't know if you see where I'm going with
3: this. Yeah. yeah. I'm very concerned, actually, about the alienation and this frustration that a lot of the uh, immigrant children are reporting in the schools. I was at a middle school recently, uh, I won't mention which, um, where I did a, a presentation. And after, at the end, and I had a bunch of junk with me. And the, um, the teacher said, well, would anyone like to help Dr. Cruz to her car with her materials? And a couple of young women raised their hands. And they happened to be Latina. And it, you know, it was, it was a concerted effort on their part. I thought I was going to get home quickly. Well, I was in the parking lot you know for like an hour and a half, um, but in large part, they were telling me about the feelings that they were feeling, and they felt like um, I was an adult who was going to be sympathetic and who was going to listen to them and you know and I did obviously and uh, later on, I talked to the school administration and to the teachers, but I am very concerned about this uh, at this point, they were maybe in seventh grade or so. Uh, but they're only there, as Dr. Bruner said, legally until age 16. You know, what's going to happen to them? There was, uh, if anyone has ever read any of the work by Linda Chavez, uh, despite the name, she is a pro-English only person, okay? <laughs> she believes that uh, immigrants need to, as quickly as possible, drop their home culture and their home language and become as Americanized as quickly as possible. And she came to the university a few years back, um, and they set up a debate, and I debated her. It was a lot of fun, (laughs) and it was a smackdown. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you know, she she's one of these kind of folks that would say, "Yeah, but Barbara, you attended uh, an immersion and a sink or swim method of language instruction, and you seem to do fine. Well." And I would say, you know, maybe I'm an anomaly, perhaps, you know, not perhaps I am. I'm an anomaly. Uh, perhaps I had a different kind of family situation. Perhaps uh, there was a teacher who mediated. And then to get back to your question, I think that as educators, I think that as K through 12 teachers, we have to mediate all of that stuff that's happening out in the world, and that they're hearing, or that they're seeing, or that they're, you know, getting on the school bus home. Um, and we need to help them process that and understand that and just keep sending these messages over and over again. And when at all possible, valuing diversity in our classrooms. And I think that to do it in a discreet way, you know, head on, say it. You know, I love this gentleman in the back with his T-shirt. You've got to stand up. You've got to model for us. You've got to model. Look at that. Look at that, okay? (laughs) So that is a head-on, obvious, discreet way, the discreet (laughs) method. But also, we need to talk about infusion methods, you know, and slowly but surely kind of weasel in and make comments and drop hints and things like that so that it's reinforced on a daily basis, not just, you know, during Cinco de Mayo when you wrap up a taco and say, okay, (laughs) we did diversity.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Blocker, yeah? (laughs)
9: I'm sitting here and I'm listening to the conversation and I'm just sharing that But uh, I heard your comment, uh, as an African-American uh, who went through and lived through the 60s, mm-hmm. the conversation is the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's no different. Uh, to talk about how did you feel comfortable in certain situations? Uh, I think we, we assume that a comfort level is existing. But I think as Sherm talked about the, the history, History is repeating itself, mm-hmm. the subjects have changed.
1: Mm-hmm.
9: But it's the same kind of topics, the same kind of conversation, the same pieces If we talk about immersion. And you know, a few years ago, the conversation was standard English versus black English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is, we're having the same dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I think for a country, um, as we're experiencing all of this, I look out at it the younger uh, you know, pre educators and thinking, you know. God, I hope my child, might, well, I should say now my grandchild, has you, because uh, you are the hope that it will not continue to repeat itself, so that we don't continue to have the same conversations about the same topics, but the subjects change. And uh, you have a charge, and I think listening, you know, to, to my colleagues today and hearing what they're saying. Uh, and watching you, because I'm, I'm looking very forward to retirement, very soon, very soon, I'm I got to tell you, very soon, <laughs> that uh, I look at you, and I just see a ray of hope, that um, there's a phrase that we use, that somebody needs to turn the ships around, uh, and, it, and it talks about in terms of uh, the reference of slavery and Africans uh, being brought here, that had somebody been there to turn the ships around, it never would have existed. So to you, I say, please turn the ships around. Or if not that, build better ships. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a great segue to we probably want to thank the panel um, and uh, thank you for your participation. This has been, I think, a very valuable experience that we would hope to continue.
3: Thank you very much.